Beginning with verse 1, he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. Now, he wasn't saying you guys aren't going to die until the whole kingdom is here. But he said, you're going to still be alive and see a flash, a, an image, a picture, coming attractions, you know, trailer of the kingdom of God itself. And after six days, he took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain <coughs> apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. A little product placement. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now imagine this. These three disciples, they go off with Jesus, and now he goes through this transformation where he's just shining, he's glowing, he's well, it's probably the view of Jesus that John had in Revelation chapter 1 as he described Jesus in all of his glory. And so as he is mysteriously transforming into this radiating, amazing sight, then Moses and Elijah pop up. And they're probably kind of glowing too. And you, know, you go, well, how did they know it was Moses and Elijah? They didn't have pictures in those days or... Were they wearing a little hello, my name is Moses sticker or what? But it gives us a, a little insight perhaps into the way heaven is. You know how the Bible says that when we get to heaven that we will know even as we are known? And I think when we get to heaven we won't need name tags. You'll look at everyone and you'll just know them and they'll know you. It's, it, it's, it'll be something. But Moses and Elijah were there. And they were having a conversation with Jesus. Don't know what they were talking about, but wow, what an opportunity. You know, Moses, this is his first Israel trip. He had never, he wanted to go to the Holy Land, didn't have the chance to do it because, you know, you remember he misrepresented God, struck the rock twice instead of speaking to it. And so God said, you can't go into the promised land. But now it's his first shot at it as he shows up there. And the one that the law was prophesying about is standing there. Jesus is going, hey, Moses, you know me? You're the one, I'm the one that you were talking about. And then there's Elijah, last thing he saw, he shoots up into heaven in a fiery chariot, and now he comes back down, and, and the one that he had prophesied about was there. Here's Moses and Elijah, Moses representing the law and the patriarchs, and Elijah, the greatest of the prophets, and there they are having a conversation with Jesus. The disciples must have felt really weird and left out, as here they are, like, what do you say? Well, there is one disciple who always knew what to say, even when he didn't know what to say. Peter piped up. He wanted to be a part of the conversation. And so it, Peter says this, and verse 6 tells us the reason he said it is because he didn't know what to say. You probably know people like that. When they don't know what to say, they have something anyway. But Peter said, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. <laughs> Duh. Us? <laughs> and, and let's make three tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He had a plan. 
you know, I think this is a perfect time to make the Mount of Transfiguration Hall of Fame. And I don't know if he was saying, you know, because he got interrupted in the middle of his sentence, how about a, a little statue of you, Moses and Elijah, maybe some little figurines for me and James and John, but it's like, Peter, shut up. I don't know what you're talking about. And as, it, as he was talking, the, the disciples were scared. I imagine James and John were really nervous when Peter starts talking. But a cloud came in verse 7 and overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. And suddenly when they looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. Peter was one of those guys that when he opened his mouth, things happened. <laughs> Moses and Elijah left for one thing. They're like, who, who is this guy? We're out. Okay, see you later. I guess he has so much to say. Our conversation is over. Now, Moses and Elijah, I believe, are going to be the two witnesses that return during the tribulation period and testify and then are taken. I know there are some people who disagree with that. Um, most everyone agrees that Elijah is one of them because the book of Malachi prophesies that Elijah is going to come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Um, some people think the other witness who's unidentified is Enoch because Enoch never died. Personally, I think it makes more sense for it to be Moses, and I think this passage tends to confirm that, but we can argue about it later if you disagree. At any rate, here's this thing that happened. Now, the voice comes from heaven, and it did a couple of things. For one thing, it set Jesus apart as being different than Moses and Elijah. It was like, no, it's not like, wow, look at the three of you. I'm sure Peter thought he was paying Jesus a great compliment by putting him in the Hall of Fame with, with Moses and Elijah. But for God the Father to hear that, it's not... It's good for us to be here. This is about Jesus and him only. And so if Moses and Elijah are going to clutter the picture, I'll just have to take them back so that you can be there with Jesus and see him in his glory. But it's also kind of a shot at Peter because as Peter's talking, God says, Peter, shut up and listen. This is my beloved son. Hear him. I don't hear you. We don't need your suggestions. You need to listen to him. An amazing picture of the kingdom. An amazing picture, really, of what all of existence is about, the glory of Jesus Christ. And the way that that elevates all of us, the way that it radiates on all of us, the way that it brings light to the world in a, in a huge way that the Old Testament always prophesied about, that as we come into the Gospels and we see the pronouncement of the shepherds there in Luke 2, something big is happening for you people. Christmas and, and ultimately all of life is about glory of Jesus Christ. And it's about listening to him. And so here in a little microcosm, we see what the kingdom of God, past, present, and future, is all about. It's about him. It's about listening to him. Now, we see that, though. And, you know, it's a coming attraction. Yeah, we know it's coming. But something else is happening here in this chapter as well. Something 
is happening in this gospel increasingly that we're seeing, here we see the end of the story, but also what's revealed to us is the pathway to the end of the story, the pathway of glory. Okay, that's what we're going to be. John said, you know, in First uh, John chapter 2, you know, beloved, now are we the sons of God. It hasn't yet appeared what we're going to be, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him for we'll see him as he is. And everyone that has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. So we see this snapshot of Jesus and God goes, that's what you're heading toward. That's what you are going to be like. It's, it's a great thing to know that. And it would be, and it is, a wonderful thing for us to understand that when we see Jesus in all of his glory, what we are seeing is where God wants to take us. But as we look through this chapter, we also discover as Jesus was making it abundantly clear that the pathway to glory isn't exactly what you might think. It's not all shining lights. It's not all wonderful experiences. It's a tough road to get where we're going. It's a costly road that Jesus Christ would walk as we follow with him through the Gospel of Mark and see that road that, yes, it leads to resurrection, but it leads through death. So Jesus told the disciples, don't tell anybody about this until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. He had been warning them all along, I'm going to die and I'm going to rise from the dead, so don't worry about it. They just couldn't conceive of that. So in verse 10, they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. Jesus said, yeah, after I rise from the dead, you can tell people about this. Oh, okay, what's he talking about? rising from the dead. They still didn't get it. So then they came up with the best theological question they could. Hey, uh, speaking of Elijah, the scribes say that Elijah must come first. Before the glory comes Elijah. They derived that from reading Malachi's prophecy. Now the scribes had probably been talking to Jesus' disciples on the side saying, you guys think he's the Messiah, but there's no way. Come on. Malachi says, Elijah's going to come, and then the Messiah. Elijah's going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. So how could he be the Messiah? So they didn't really want to bring it up with Jesus, but now Elijah had come for a short time. Peter chased him away. But you know, now they're like, uh, I wonder if this is the time. Is it a shortcut? Elijah just came. Now you can ascend to your throne. Is that the deal? Jesus answered and told them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things, prepares the way. And how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has also come and they did to him whatever they wished, as it is written of him. Jesus said, no, they're right, Elijah has to come. But he said, how come nobody's pulling out the passages of Scripture that say that the Messiah is going to be cut off? Daniel chapter 9. Why doesn't anybody pay attention to Isaiah 53, where the Messiah is seen as suffering and dying for the sins of the world? How come you're not looking for those 
precursors to the kingdom. You only want the easy path to glory. You're ignoring passages of Scripture that let you know this isn't going to be easy. And he said, Elijah has come, and what they do to him? Now, Elijah in the Old Testament, when he came, never died. He ascended into heaven in a fiery chariot. And so over in Matthew's gospel, in this same passage, Matthew says, they understood that Jesus was speaking about John the Baptist. See, John the Baptist is an interesting character that's tied in intimately with Elijah. Even in Malachi's gospel, there are some prophecies that are specifically about, about John the Baptist. And it's seen as a fulfillment of that. Now, there were people who believed that that John the Baptist actually was Elijah, kind of reincarnated. And there are others, John the Baptist himself, they go, are you Elijah? He goes, no. Now, Jesus was kind of nebulous on this point because, and we don't have a ton of time to dig into this, but when you talk about a God who prophesies detailed things and makes offerings to people, and yet their response is involved in a contingency of the fulfillment of those prophecies, it's really, it gets tricky. Now, we know that God knows all things, so to explain it away by acting like eh, God's surprised, as the advocates of openness theology teach, we know that's wrong. We know that God's sovereign and he has his hand involved in everything that happens. And so it's not right to understand God as being a victim of circumstances. And yet, Scripture teaches clearly that at times when it comes to fulfilled prophecies, there are opportunities that God gives. If people respond, God is able to work in a particular way. Now, Jesus, on the one hand said that, in another passage, he says that if you had received it, he would have been Elijah, John the Baptist would have been. In other words, the coming of John the Baptist could have fulfilled Malachi's prophecy. If you don't understand that, join the club. But Jesus said, could have been, but because you rejected me, now Elijah's going to come. It's going, to, it's going to have to be fulfilled in a different way. God knew the whole plan all along, but he made it possible in every way that had the children of Israel received Jesus as their Messiah at his first coming, yes, he would have had to fulfill the prophecies and suffered and died. And yet there was no reason for then the time of the Gentiles to go on and on until that time when the Lord comes back and makes things right and restores his relationship with Israel and all of that, he gave them a legitimate offer. He was presented as the Messiah, but as John said in John 1, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. Whoops. So what Jesus is saying, and and Luke, I think, kind of clears the controversy up by saying that in Luke chapter 1, it says that John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah. He was filled with the Spirit in the same way that Elijah was. He wasn't reincarnated, of course. We know that because there's Elijah, still Elijah. But what happened is he had that same power. He had that same role in that ministry of introducing the Messiah. And so, yes, 
John the Baptist came and was an Elijah-type figure, and in a way that we can't completely understand, had the children of Israel accepted Jesus as their Messiah at that point, then there would have been no reason for necessarily a tribulation period for Elijah to return with Moses and, and testify and all that. It could have been fulfilled. Jesus' point here, though, if I hope that cleared some things up for you. You can check with me later if you're still hazy on it. I am too. Um, but his point here is, you know, you guys are talking about, yeah, Elijah's going to come and then the Messiah's going to come. He goes, look what they did to Elijah. Elijah wasn't accepted as a great prophet in his own lifetime. And John the Baptist, coming in the spirit and power of Elijah, was beheaded and, and rejected. And he said, don't you understand? There are prophecies about Messiah that that's going to happen to him, just like it happened to them. In other words, the path to glory is not a shortcut. The path to glory is not a glorious path. It's an ugly and a painful path in order to get where you're going to where ultimately you see the glory. And he's preparing them for that fact that though where you're going is a beautiful place, the way you get there is going to cost you plenty. Now they came down the mountain, and as you see, there was a boy who was a deaf mute due to the fact that, that he was demon-possessed. Now, of course, everyone who's a deaf mute isn't possessed, but in this case, um, this boy was. And he was having seizures and being thrown on the ground and so on. The other disciples were killing time while Jesus was gone with Peter, James, and John. And so they had cast demons out before. And so they were trying to cast the demons out of this kid. Couldn't do it. We're just getting embarrassed by the whole thing. It was just making it worse. Jesus came down the mountain and he inquired, okay, what's going on? There's a crowd of people. The crowd's getting bigger. The disciples were looking foolish as they kept telling demons to come out and the demons aren't coming out. And so Jesus finally said in verse 25, he saw the people came running together. He rebuked the unclean spirit and said to it, deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. Spirit cried out, convulsed greatly and came out of him and the kid laid there like he was dead. Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. When he came into the house, the disciples said, how come we couldn't? I mean, we said the same things you said, did the same thing you did, and we couldn't cast the demons out. And he said to them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. An important point that again develops the theme that Jesus is trying to prepare them for. Life is not easy the kingdom life now in this fallen world is difficult. And you can't just always say it and it's going to happen. And you can't just always do business as usual and expect it to always be blessed. Life is tough. And he says in particular, the reason I could do it isn't because I'm God. Isn't because I'm better than you are. It's because I pray more than you do and fast more than you do. While you guys are out pigging out. Sometimes I'm doing without, spending time with my father. See, we're in a spiritual battle, and spiritual battles are fought with spiritual weapons. And the greatest spiritual weapons that we see presented in the scriptures 
is prayer and fasting. Praying, spending time with God. Fasting, being willing to deprive ourselves. Now, I'm not going to get off on a whole big message on fasting. Sometimes in another passage that deals with it more, we'll do that. But throughout the scriptures, this is presented as something that's a, an important element to spiritual warfare. Now, there are different kinds of fasts. Daniel did what we call a Daniel fast, where he didn't eat meat or bread or sweets. He just ate vegetables. Now, for me personally, I would just as soon eat nothing. <laughs> and that's a fast too. <laughs> but Jesus is saying, you're in a battle. Yeah, I know you just saw the transfiguration, but what lies behind that, what lies ahead of it, is that you are in a war. And prayer and fasting is an important aspect of doing that battle. And the disciples are like, oh man, we were all excited when you were shining and everything. And we loved experiencing that feeling of glory, but I mean, you got to miss a meal to do it. I mean, you have to set aside long times in order to pray. Can't I just pray a little before I eat? Oh, you generally pray before I eat. Isn't that enough? No. If you really want to win, if you really want to do spiritual battle, it involves some serious prayer and fasting. And that's what he is presenting here. And that's the whole point as to why Mark included this in, the, in this transfiguration prelude and this coming attraction because sometimes you're going to not eat. Sometimes you're going to have to spend time laboring in prayer with the Lord if you really want to win, if you really want to see that spiritual power that's on that road to glory. Now Jesus is talking to them again as they're going through Galilee. He didn't want the crowds to be attracted to him. For he taught his disciples, verse 31, and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and after he is killed, he will rise the third day. How much clearer could you get? I am going to be betrayed. They're going to kill me. And then I'm going to come back from the dead three days later. Now you hear that from our perspective and you go, man, Jesus was kept telling them that. Why were they surprised when he was betrayed? Why were they so freaked out when he went to be killed? Why was it that when he died they thought it was over and they went back to fishing? Why is it that when he rose from the dead they couldn't even believe it? He was telling them that all along. But they just didn't want to hear it. Because it might mean some pain for them too. And so, the more clear Jesus was about it, the more they said, verse 32, they did not understand this saying. And they were afraid to even ask him a question about it for fear that it was true. They were afraid that he's really going to die. And then resurrection, who knows about that? We've never seen it before. And what if he's just saying... I'm going to die, and then someday, you know, in a mystical way, I'll sort of still be here with you. That's not great news for simpleton disciples. But the path to glory heads through death. The only way to get to resurrection is by dying first. And so Jesus is again trying to prepare them for that, and they didn't want to hear it. And the truth is we don't either. 
We don't even usually like to think about dying. We, we don't even like to think about, as, as he says here, the Son of Man's going to be betrayed. I don't even want to think about being betrayed, deserted by people I trust in. But you know what? That's life. Sooner or later, people who you absolutely trust are going to betray you. And that's painful. It hurts every single time. If you've had someone that you love and you trust and you depend on, and they turn on you, they, they hurt you, they betray you, it's, it's incredibly painful. But Jesus knew what that felt like, and he knew that there's a resurrection after that death, that killing pain that comes from betrayal. The truth is, we don't want to think about death, and we don't want to think about betrayal, because our trust so often is not in God, but our trust is in people. And so I think if someone I love would betray me, that would absolutely destroy me. You know, and it does for many people. When they feel betrayal, it just is devastating. Actually, to be betrayed and to experience those, those dying moments, it's a good opportunity for you to find who you're really trusting. Because if you're trusting people and they let you down, it'll wipe you out. But if you're trusting God, you can love someone and you can trust them too. Give them the benefit of the doubt, but you realize they may betray me. And I've already decided ahead of time, I'm not going to let that destroy me because really I'm trusting God as I entrust myself to them. You can trust people too much to the extent that you're not really trusting God. And then when that person lets you down, you'd be devastated. It's the same way with death. Unless you're willing to die, you don't really know what it is to live. Unless you know, hey, if it kills me, this is what I'm going to do and I know that if it kills me, I have a better life. I'll spend an eternity with God. To live your life in constant fear of death is what? It's a denial of resurrection. And all it does is ruin your appreciation for life. And if you are living with relationships whereby you're so needy of other people that you cling to them, that you know that if they ever left you, it would destroy you, not only are you denying the God who you're supposed to trust, but you'll, you'll suffocate the life out of any relationship that you are in. We have to trust God. And therefore, we have to accept life involves betrayal, life involves death, but resurrection comes. It's there. It doesn't have to be such a threat. And so Jesus is again trying to teach them this stuff. Odd sorts of things to talk about after just having seen the conclusion, the glory. But necessary because this is the path to glory. Now he goes on and as they're walking along, he knew that they had been having an argument about who was the greatest. And so... They did it, of course, behind Jesus' back. You know, they wouldn't do it right in front of him, but he knew everything, so he knew they were having that argument. And it probably went something like this. The disciples were all talking, and, and Peter, James, and John were talking about the transfiguration moment. 
And they're going, man, it's too bad you guys didn't see it. I can't even describe it. It's a, in fact, really, I wasn't even supposed to tell you until after something I forget. So, you know, uh, it's probably resurrections happened, so we'll tell you. So too bad because out of 12 of us, only three got to actually get to the finals. So the rest of you guys, you nine semifinalists, you aren't as great as us, but what do you think about us, Peter, James, and John? Which one of us is the greatest? And Peter's like, well, I'm the one who spoke up. And they go, yeah, you're the one that caused Moses and Elijah to leave. You're the one that caused God to tell you to shut up and listen to Jesus. You came up with a dumb idea about building statues. And so Peter's like, yeah, you're right. So James and John, I wonder who's the greatest. And they continued this conversation later, and they got their mom involved and everything else. But Jesus jumps in to the discussion, and he says, what were you guys fighting about? (laughs) They didn't want to say anything because they had been arguing about who would be the greatest. And he sat down and he called the 12, and he said to them, if anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and set him in the midst of them, and when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. He says, on this road to glory, it goes through being a servant. If you want to be greatest, become the greatest servant. And if you really want to make a difference, don't promote yourself to some grand position. Why don't you just minister to kids? I am absolutely convinced, and I can support it with tons of Scripture, that the best thing that you can do with your life is to spend time ministering to kids. Jesus said... You do it to them, you do it to me. What a great privilege that you moms have to be able to spend as much time as you do with your kids. That you dads have that some of you don't take advantage of it. There are some dads who are always getting involved in their kids' lives. There are other dads who are just like, I'm glad mom can take care of the kids. I have more important things to do. I'm convinced that the most important thing that's happening in this church right now is not us right here in this room. It's back in the children's ministry with the little kids. That's the real ministry. I'm just keeping you guys busy while we minister to your kids. <laughs> and if you have kids or grandkids, you know this. This is, this is a no-brainer, but Jesus said it. But it, it's so opposite the way we think. We would think, and usually people think, I'll work with kids and then hopefully... They'll promote me to junior high and then high school, and someday I'll be over adults. You know, no, this is where the cast-offs, really. We're not where it's at. And, and yet, you do what God calls you to do. I used to minister to kids a lot. I try to do it still as much as I have opportunity. But you ultimately have to do what God calls you to do. Plus, God has given me a special insight into the fact that You guys never grow up. So in some ways, I consider this just children's ministry for old people. (laughs) But again, what a curveball to people who want to be great. To say what you need to do is to serve. He already said you need to pray and fast. 
He already said it's going to hurt and involve death and betrayal. And now he says, and by the way, it's all about service. It's all about being a servant. It's all about caring about kids and loving them. When you love them, you're loving me. Now, John cuts in. He answered. (laughs) They couldn't think of anything to say, so they answered. Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow us. John goes, I saw another little movement sprouting up, and we don't even know the guy. Jesus, I don't even think you know him. But he's out there trying to do what we do. He's competition. Jesus, we told him, hey, forget it. We have a trademark on the gospel, on healing, casting out demons. No, if you don't do it with us, you don't count. There's no room for any rival movements to pop up here. Jesus said, what are you doing? Don't forbid him for no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. What a radical thought. That it's not unless you come and kiss up to us, you're against us. He's going, no, if they're not against us, then they're doing what we want them to do. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. In other words, we are not the protectors and the owners of the trademark Jesus Christ. We are not the ones who define the parameters in which someone is okay enough to be considered our brother in the Lord. You let, if people are out there giving water to people who are thirsty, bless them for it and let them do it. If, if there, and there are some people who still, this is a major factor and they need to see what Jesus said here. There are people who when someone says they're a Christian, well, we need to get out the checklist and make sure that they're the same kind of Christian that we are because maybe they're worshiping another Jesus. Jesus didn't say that. He didn't say, well, go ask them some questions and find out. And He goes, look, if they're not against us, they're for us. If they're not attacking us, don't you attack them. Don't go picking fights with people. We need more people to be ministering to others. And if they're doing it in my name, God bless them for it. They will answer to God ultimately. Yeah, maybe these guys were ultimately cultists or something. That's not your problem. Jesus would say. They haven't taken us on yet. Don't pick a fight with them. And if there are people out there who are serving God in their own way and they're giving Jesus the credit for it and doing it in his name, you're not the protector of his name. He is. So bless them for it. Don't rip them to shreds. Don't forbid them. Don't you know, explain to everyone why, well, really, if you want the real truth, it needs to be at our church or at churches that we're affiliated with. No way. Jesus didn't do that with his disciples. We better not do it either. See, because the road to glory involves a lot of different approaches. And you can't get distracted and sidetracked battling against other people who are trying to do the same thing that you're doing. You have a full-time job to do 
to represent Jesus Christ to others, to share his love with others. And every minute that you spend going around chasing down heretics is a minute that you're not spending representing him. God's really good at chasing down heretics himself. It's not our job. It's not really necessary. Now, if they come after us, of course, that puts it in a different category. But at this point, all they're doing is helping people. So Jesus said, don't forbid them. Just let them go and we'll see. You'll see how it ends up. Now, in that same context, verse 42, and the passage that proceeds down through most of the rest of the chapter, we have this case of causing others to stumble. Now, there are <coughs> different interpretations of exactly what this applies to. There are, there are those who would say the whole passage about the guys who were out there who aren't really from our church, but they're doing stuff in Jesus' name, that was a parenthesis, and now Jesus is getting back to the whole children thing. There are others who say, no, in the context, it's obvious. It's in the context of them trying to choke out what God is doing in people who are different than we are that he brings this up. So commentators differ, but I say, so what? What difference does it make? His point is, don't cause other people to stumble. Don't cause children to stumble, because when you minister to them, you're ministering to him. When you hurt them, you're hurting him. But at the same time, and perhaps the reason that it came about in this context was, and the analogy might be, there are some people out there who haven't had a bunch of teaching. And maybe they're kind of new in the Lord, and they don't have everything down quite right, but they're out there serving God. And they're young. And you disciples, you're, you've been at it for almost three years, so you're the experts, so you go forbid them. And Jesus says, no, don't forbid them. His point is the same either way. Don't be stumbling others. Don't be doing things that will hurt others. And, and look at what he says. If you cause one of these little ones to, who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for you if a millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. Ugh. And then he says, if your hand offends you, cut off your hand. If your foot offends you, cut it off. If your eye offends you, Pluck it out. And in each case, he says, you're better off going to heaven with one eye, one hand, and one foot than burning in hell forever with both of them intact. What's he saying? He's not saying, cut your hand off. And there, sadly, I've known several cases where people who were mentally not quite right read the scripture and thought God was telling them to cut their hand off, pluck out their eye, and, and they proceeded to do that. He's obviously using a huge statement to exaggerate. But here's what he's saying is, whatever it takes, you need to get yourself disciplined so that you're not causing other people to stumble and to, to not be able to be saved or driving them away from Christ. Now, there isn't anybody who is causing people to stumble because of their hands or their eyes. So you don't need to cut those off, but... Get back to something else and say, what sacrifices are you willing to make in order to remove stumbling blocks from your life where you're hurting people, where you're doing damage to people for eternity? 
This is an admonition that if we're heading on the road to glory, we need to make sure that we get ourselves under control so that we're not popping off, whether it's with our critical spirit toward people who see things differently than we do but who who love and serve Jesus, or whether it's in our dealings with our kids where we don't treat them in a way that gives them a good picture of what it's like to have a God who loves you. In every way possible, I don't want to get in the way of someone coming into a relationship with Jesus Christ. I don't want to be the hindrance. And it means that there are certain things in my life that I just can't afford to do if it causes that stumbling. Now again, this isn't just about, well, if you offend someone, usually when people use this stumbling thing, it's usually somebody who's been a Christian for years who gets bummed because you're watching The Simpsons or something like that. that is, there isn't anybody out there who's not going to get saved because of what you watch on TV or whatever. But the way that you talk about Jesus, the way you represent him, by acting like he is something that he isn't, by acting like he's mad at people when they aren't, hey, learn the lesson of Moses when he misrepresented God and acted like God was mad at the people. God said, you can't represent me that way. And as a result, you don't get to go to, on your first Israel tour until much later with Jesus. See, we can't represent him and keep people out of the kingdom and think, well, it doesn't matter, I'm saved. I'm going there. Hey, salvation is something that is made to be offered, to be shared. And anything that we do in our lives, it's worth changing it modifying it. As Paul said, I've become all things to all men that by all means I might win some. Now, we don't have time to go into that whole passage. I know it brings up a whole new set of questions. But Jesus' point is this. You make sure that if you're going to represent Jesus, that you take seriously the admonition to not be a stumbling block to those who are young, to new Christians, to young kids, to the next generation, to those who haven't figured it all out yet, you cut whatever it is out of your life if it's getting in the way. Because heaven is worth that. And hell is very real. And you don't want to go there, but you don't want other people going there either. And you certainly don't want people going to hell for eternity because of the way you acted as the mature Christian. Now, you should be willing to take a loss, take a hit, remove certain things if they get in the way of that path to glory, of that road to transfiguration. What this really speaks of is as we're looking back through the passage, it's not an easy road to glory. It's a road that involves spiritual battle and prayer and fasting. It's a, it's a road that involves becoming a servant. It's a road that involves death and rejection before resurrection. It's a, it's a road ultimately that as we move through and see what God says, hey, it's a road of self-denial. It's a road of denying yourself, taking up your cross, following him, making adjustments, learning the self-control and discipline that's necessary so that in no way is the way that I'm conducting myself going to prevent somebody else from seeing that God loves them, from seeing that there's a way that they can spend an eternity with Jesus Christ. He finally, in the end of the chapter, the last couple of verses says, 
Everyone will be seasoned with fire, and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Before they would sacrifice the meat, they would salt it. And he says, you know, you're going to go through the fire. You're going to go through difficulties. You're a living sacrifice. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. He goes, if you're right in yourself, if you have allowed the word of God to season your life, if Jesus is working in you and making you more refreshing to others, more of a blessing to others, that when people see your life, they realize you've added things to their life, like salt is to food, just enough to make it just right. When that happens, um, you'll be at peace with others. You'll be used by God to draw others to himself. And that road is, in, is a difficult road. It's a painful road. It's a sacrificial road. It hurts, but it leads to glory. And it really helps that we get that picture right off the bat. Here's where we're heading. Man, you're going to be so clean, no laundry could ever make you this clean. Why? Because we're going to be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, in his robes. But let's move in that direction, understanding where that path goes. It's not an easy path, but it's so worthwhile. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word and for your promises and for this beautiful image, this coming attraction of what you're going to be, of what you are now, and of what we are going to be. And Lord, help us to keep that snapshot in mind as we deal with the hurts of life, as we struggle through learning about prayer and fasting and death and resurrection and personal sacrifice and servitude. Lord, in every way as we go through this, this journey of life, help us to keep in the front of our mind the goal, the prize, the upward call of God that's in Christ Jesus. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand. If you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ, man, he has such a glorious plan for you. He can take your life as much as you've messed it up, and he can make it right and beautiful and fresh and new. That's what he wants to do for you, if you let him. If you haven't botched your life up enough, need a couple more weeks, I hope God will give you that opportunity. We'll still be here unless he takes us. But if you've gotten to the point where you realize this is a dead end, I'm going nowhere, why not give your life to him and see what he can do with it? There'll be people down here in the front after the service who would love to pray with you and introduce you to Jesus Christ. For the rest of us, this week, if we've given our lives to him already, we're on the path to glory. We've seen the coming attractions. Now let's start suffering and hurting and serving like we think it's worth it. Let's stop acting like life is just miserable and it's destroying us. Life is making us a beautiful thing that God wants us to be. Let's appreciate the opportunity, walking with him, basking in his glory, in the future, man, it's going to only get so much better for us. God bless.